Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny B. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 50,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. Talk about all the things that I've been with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm feeling sick. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Welcome to another episode of Words and Nerds podcast, where we bring literary goodness to your ears. Today, I welcome a guest, a repeat guest. And when we get on the podcast, we don't stop talking and he matches the speed of my talking. So you've got to buckle in for this ride, people, because we're going to say a million words a minute and you're just going to have to keep up because we cannot control ourselves. Of course, this man needs no further introduction, but I will anyway, because he's written some amazing books, which I love. Gabriel Bergmoster is here with me tonight, author of The Hunted, The Inheritance, The Consequences, The True Colour of Little White Light and The Hitchhiker. Gabe, do you recognise that all of your books start with the? Yeah, and you know, it's funny because I feel like that's almost accidental. Like I did this <laughs> other interview at some point where somebody was like, wow, you really love the definite articles in your titles. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I, I get that. But at the same time, it's like, you know, I think I put this on Twitter recently, you know, most of my titles or most of my books have been retitled by my publishers, you know, ah, because I found that I'm, yeah, I'm terrible at titles. I've and got to I ask I've you though. I've found that like. Yeah, go. Sorry, I just interrupted what? you mid-sentence. No, that's all right. Bad um, habit of mine. <laughs> well, I've got the same one, so I can't be too judgmental. Um, no, it's like uh, I think it's it's. I think more recently, I've kind of found that like I've figured out that like the something seems to work for most of my books. So it does. I tend to skew towards that, and that has worked mostly. Like I found that I've had less like you know, very kind of polite title rejections. But um, but yeah, for a while there, like The Hunted was something else, The Inheritance was something else. else wow. Like I think it's The Inheritance I'd originally called just Maggie. And uh-huh. I remember HarperCollins being like, oh, what's the name of the second book? And I was like, oh, it's just called Maggie. And I just kind of remember Catherine Milne at Harper just sort of looking at me with this like slight smile and being like, all right, cool, we'll think of something. And <laughs> I was like, all right, fair enough. <laughs> She's like, no, it's not. <laughs> and that's... Yeah, no, it'll be something else, but thanks for the points for effort. So now I'm kind of just like going for, you know, the the, the something to to sort of work with. I never noticed it until I just read them out. That Australian. (laughs) And then they all sort of like, you realize there's a pattern there. Now I've got to ask, we're going to talk about the hitchhiker predominantly today. So was that named by you? Because I can't think of it being named anything else. Yeah, so The Hitchhiker, I think, was in some ways one of the exceptions that proves the rule in that what happened was that once I kind of got a little bit into developing the story and I knew early on that I wanted to play with The Hitchhiker trope, you know, everybody knows the story about, you know, the the driver who picks up The Hitchhiker and The Hitchhiker turns out to be dangerous and all form of chaos ensues. And initially I was thinking, all right, well, we've seen that before a million times. I sort of did a version of it even in The Hunted. So I was like, how do I turn that on its head? And 
once I kind of figured out very early on that the story was going to center on a hitchhiker, there really was no other title. So this is one of those rare exceptions where I didn't have some, uh, you know, a, a publisher and editor who knows a lot better than me about this stuff sort of, you know, quietly saying, all right, Gabe, we're going we're gonna to kind of come up with something a little bit more marketable for you. <laughs> so this one I can proudly say was my own invention in terms well of the title. Well done. Well done. Now, Gabe, I'm going to start with a confession that may result in me being judged. Are you ready? Go for it, please. I have always preferred the book, the actual physical book, right, over Kindles, Kobos, Audibles, all those things. I've always preferred to have the beautiful book in my hand. I love the feel of it, the weight of it, the smell of it, all that kind of weird book stuff. However, I feel like I've been transformed. I listened to The Hitchhiker on Audible and my life has been changed. (laughs) I not even making this up because if I didn't believe this, I just wouldn't say it. So it's all the things that I don't say is what I mean. <laughs> oh my oh. God. It was amazing. It, I could, it was six hours and every chance I got, I would have it in my ears and play it. So on the way to work, I went to the office on Monday and that was a two hour round trip. So that got a big chunk of it. And then I was like, I just kept thinking about it. So I cooked dinner put my earplugs in and put my phone in my pocket so I could get a little bit more. And then I had 20 minutes before I had to start work at home and I listened to it then. And then during my lunch break, I listened to it again. Like I couldn't stop listening to it. So it's the first experience of Audible Book that I, I didn't just enjoy. I absolutely loved. That like, I mean, firstly, that's like such an amazingly flattering thing to hear. And for a big you know, in no small part, because I 100% relate, because I'm the same, you know, I'm, I'm a physical book purist, you know, I've tried to read things on Kindle, I've tried to listen to audiobooks, and I've never really gotten that into it. And it's a funny thing where like, with the two Audible originals I've done so far with The Consequence and The Hitchhiker, I've had a lot of readers who love the other books sort of say to me, when are they coming out in print? And I'm like, well, you know, I don't know if they are because they're Audible originals. And they sort of go, oh, well, that's a shame because, you know, we don't, listen, we, don't, we don't listen to audiobooks. And I can't kind of refute that or push back on that or I feel wrong doing either of those things because I'm the same, you know, I'm not an audiobook mm. listener. So, and I think if I'm bold to say, you know, why maybe this one is different for some people, I think so much of it just comes down to the performance of the cast because, you know, I listen to the reading that three actors, Guyton, Grantley, Lee, Cormier and Skin did. And it's a similar feeling that I get when my editor gives me a pile of notes and I read them and I go, oh my God, I get to take credit for all of this. <laughs> and it's kind of the same with delivery that's this good because you you listen to it and you go, oh man, you guys make me sound really, really good. And that is <laughs> awesome. And, you know, I, I do hope the Hitchhiker does get a print release at some readers are and how vividly they bring the story to life and somewhat selfishly I kind of want people to experience it in this format even if there is another one down the line because they elevate the work so so much and they're so so good like all three of them just absolutely inhabit and capture and bring to life the characters and the different voices needed for these three parts and and that's no small feat because the book Mm -hmm. is written from three different perspectives and I mean it's third person limited third person but I do think the voices are slightly different depending on who's telling the story, but all three of them just are the characters who take center stage in that part of the story. And that I think just adds this whole other element to the book that 
I think is kind of irreplaceable in some ways. Mm. So there are two things you said, first of all, about the performance, which I could not agree with you more. Honestly, when I was listening to these actors, I was in the car, I was in the car, I was on the roadhouse, I was on the side of the road. I was hundred percent there. Like I've never been in an audible book before. So whatever they did for this, it was amazing. The second thing is I think you're being a bit too humble, Gabe Bergmoser, because the story and the writing is actually really, really good. And I think for me, the two things that really stood out for me was that they're on the road for a long time. You know, they're in this vast, expansive land with not a lot around them. And yet you've created this claustrophobic tension. And there's a tension that is there throughout the entire story. And so that's one of the main things I wanted to ask you was about how do you create and maintain that tension? Because there's a there's a risk, I reckon, you're out in the landscape of, of a story becoming draw, dry and boring. The Hitchhiker was never any of those things. It was always, I couldn't wait to, to plug it back into my ears, right? So how do you create tension, that claustrophobic atmosphere in a car that's on this vast expanse of land with predominantly two characters for much of the book? You know, it's... It's amazing to hear you say that because in a lot of ways, The Hitchhiker is a departure from my other books. And it's funny because I do think, I did a different interview recently where a lot of attention was drawn to the similarities between this and The Hunter, but particularly in the inciting instant, you know, the, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. hapless driver who picks up a mysterious traveller and all hell breaks loose as it follows. But the difference is The Hunter kind of very quickly descends into you know, all our chaos and like full-on bloodshed and intense violence and attacks and everything. Whereas you're right, this does mostly take place in a car. But in a weird way, I think the Hitchhiker kind of suited my sensibilities a little bit better because my background is in theatre. And Mm. to me, good theatre is characters in a room, in a contained location where you use the fact that these people who maybe don't like each other or have some issue with each other are stuck in this small space that... To me, the, the the idea that that one limited location could become boring, I understand it, but I don't agree with it because I think if done well, which I see in like a lot of the plays and movies I love, that can become a kind of pressure cooker. Like if you've got two personalities who are so at odds with each other and you're putting them in this really small contained space where there kind of is no escape, then the claustrophobia becomes this whole other almost character in the story or this other element that can really, really escalate it. So, you know, it's funny because this book differs from my other ones in that in some ways it was kind of based on a brief. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, when Audible signed me up for The Consequence, they said to me, look, we've got this other thing we want to do and we really want to do an Outback Horror story that is Wolf Creek meets Locke. Locke being the film with Tom Hardy where it's just Tom Hardy in a car. And I've always loved Locke. Like I saw it a few years ago and I think that is an absolute feat of, I mean, screenwriting comes to mind because if it wasn't well-written, it wouldn't be compelling, but also just performance and yep. and, uh, and directing and everything to keep it really engaging. But that film really is Tom Hardy in a car making phone calls. Another mm. example I think of is this brilliant Danish film that was recently remade by Netflix called The Guilty, where it's a cop on dispatch who gets a phone call from somebody who's in trouble. And the whole film is him on a phone in this one location. And as it goes on, as opposed to what you might assume, which is that one location becoming monotonous or somehow restrictive, it actually really, really amps up the stakes and amps up the intensity and makes you feel like you can't move, like you're stuck in that place and it's really building up. 
so when Audible sort of said to me, we want that, you know, that was all they gave me was Wolf Creek meets Locke. Oh, and I love that. As I've, and as I've sort of said before, what I was a brief. like, right? And I'm like, look, I'm, I'm a working writer. I'm not going to say no to paid work. But also I was like, that's a really exciting challenge to me. So what do I do with that? And so straight away you think somebody picks dodgy together. But then of course, how do you subvert that? How do you subvert what we've seen before? And in a lot of ways, I kind of approached the hitchhiker almost in the same way that I would approach writing theatre, where it's so dependent on dialogue and it's so dependent on the conversation these characters have and the conversation shedding light on how violent they are. Because initially what you've got is the driver, Paul, who's this middle-aged man who's, you, you get the sense that he's running away from something that, you know, something's happened in his past, which you slowly find out is a relationship breakdown. And he's taking that as an opportunity to kind of like live out his wayfarer dreams. And he picks up a hitchhiker who's also got a dodgy past, potentially a dodgy one, who is clearly on the run of something really dangerous and is willing to go to the extreme lengths to achieve what he wants. But to me, the tension came from, particularly in that first act, the idea of what if the driver just seems completely oblivious to how dangerous the hitchhiker might mm. be. And so every little thing the hitchhiker says that might be threatening or might be unsettling or might really, you know, be a warning sign that this guy is somebody you should not have let get in your car, this driver just does not pay any attention to. Like, in his mind, he goes, ah, what a quirky, interesting character. How strange. How, you know, how how crazy. How wild. You know, how colourful. This is the kind of adventure I've been looking for. And what I was really hoping for was to create a sense of the audience listening to this and being like, stop, just like have some awareness about what's going on, dude. And to hopefully create some tension from that, because what then happens is that the driver's obliviousness ends up aggravating the hitchhiker more because the driver is not reacting the way the hitchhiker wants him to react. And the audience is hopefully cognizant of how the hitchhiker wants the driver to react to this. And so hopefully that builds and builds and builds the pressure cooker thing until the point where we realize that these characters are stuck in this place and they can't leave for various plot reasons that, you know, start to unfold as the story goes on. And then of course the challenge becomes, how do you, you know, how do you create stark and interesting and exciting left turns that will drive the story into new territory so it doesn't become monotonous and you know that's its own kind of challenge but when it came to it i was like i really think that this is something that sits well within my skill set and it's kind mm -hmm. of you know bringing together a few different things that i've practiced like you know the dark intensity of the hunted with the contains sort of single space setting and dialogue driven storytelling of a lot of my plays mm, and you know what i cannot believe i didn't pick that up i mean i'm a drama theater lover with you know drama experience and i know that you you are you know that's your experience too and now it's just dawned on me like it's so obvious of course it was you know that kind of theatrical tension and you know it's the same as being glued to a, a play with one or two characters you know, it's that same kind of thing. And it's funny, you were talking about movies that do that. I just saw um, Good Luck to you, Leo Grand with Emma Thompson. Yeah, which I haven't seen yet. Phenomenal. Like, honestly, it is phenomenal. I, I took a bit of a risk because I, I saw an advert and I went, oh, I think this looks a bit cool and quirky, but you never know. And the I was glued to that screen the entire time. It's a phenomenal story about feminism and ageing and women and expectations. And it's literally two people in a hotel room every scene but you can't stop watching it. and the audience were laughing out loud it was amazing so yeah i actually think there's in good writing uh they're some of the best experiences that you can have that's a movie that's going to stick with me for a while so as we as is this book so it's really interesting that that you say that yeah
Well, and I think so much of that comes down as well to just the good acting as well, because, yeah. I mean, the moment you talk about that, because I didn't realise that film mostly took place in a hotel room. I'd heard a bit about it, but the main reason I would have gone and seen it had been the Emma Thompson of it all, oh, because with Emma Thompson, you kind of can't go wrong. brilliant. And, you know, I always think about one of my all-time favourite movies is Before Sunset, which mm-hmm. isn't claustrophobic, yes. but it is two characters walking and talking. It is yeah. basically one extended real-time conversation, and it's so riveting because of the chemistry that the two actors have and because Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy are so good. And that, I genuinely think, is the key to those kind of contained stories, is to have performers who can really tap into the writing and really bring it to life and really make it compelling. And, you know, there was a version of this early on where Audible did sort of vaguely suggest do you do it as kind of an audio drama or a radio play? And so I wrote that a little bit thinking, you know, maybe they'll read the manuscript and they won't be happy with it and they'll want me to kind of uh, adapt it into more of a script format. And so I kind of want to make life a bit easy for myself and just be <laughs> able to, you know, transpose the dialogue pretty directly if I had to. And luckily that, that didn't end up happening. But I did kind of write that a little bit. And in the end, that only would have worked if the actors had been good enough. And in the case of the three narrators who were chosen, they absolutely were. I mean, mm. had this been done as the radio play format and those three actors had actually read those characters, mm. I think it would have been, you know, just as just as successful in terms of achieving what it was trying to achieve, you know? Yeah, it was brilliant. I, I, I can't just tell you how much I loved it, honestly, and it was such an experience for me because I'm, I've never been against audiobooks. I just personally didn't enjoy them as much as a real book until now, Gabe, until now. <laughs> now well, I- that brings me no source of extraordinary <laughs> pride. <laughs> Something else I really noticed about the book as well, and you know, sometimes when you're reading a book, you kind of get a bit bored of the backstory, and you're like, "Oh, just get on with the story." But you manage to move from past to present, not only seamlessly, but I was as keen to get to the backstory as I was to get to the current story because it just added so much richness to the characters. And then you had these amazing surprise plot twists, particularly in part two. Um, of what occurred and how they kind of both ended up in that car. And I just think like, you know, as a person who is trying to write crime, I just thought that that technique that you used moving seamlessly from past to present and making both those parallel narratives as compelling as each other was just an incredible feat. And I want you to talk me through how you did that. Okay. So this is again, one of those things where you've just, serve me like no shortage of relief because (laughs) it's a risk right like particularly in part one where you've got the like like ultimately I think all storytelling comes down to what is the dramatic question that we're trying to answer what is what is the hook that the audience want to see resolve and obviously you know you've got a middle-aged naive driver who's picked up a potentially dangerous hitchhiker you've got a hook there you've got potential tension you've got this has to go somewhere bad or somewhere interesting (laughs) it's not going to be a happy ending is it (laughs) exactly so in the first version of this that i wrote only the middle section had flashbacks because of the three characters i kind of believe that that was the only character who needed kind of contextualizing to fully explain it and one of the reasons I went for that was because I was like at that point hopefully where there's already been at least one twist I'm like at that point hopefully I will be able to earn 
the audience's patience in some in some regard and that hopefully the flashbacks will be something to look forward to because we'll be solving a mystery mm. but then audible very early on were like okay so we want to have flashbacks for the other two characters as well because we feel like they both need a little bit of you know grounding and backstory and everything and so particularly in part one i'm terrified of boring my audience i'm always terrified of you know slowing things down to the point where somebody might check out and, you know, one criticism I do get a bit is that my stories can be too fast and can be too chaotic and too frenetic and everything. And, Not from me. Uh, you won't get that like, criticism no. from me. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, you know, and I appreciate that and I love hearing that. But I do also think that, you know, you have to – it's a great bit of advice that I got from a – a tutor of mine once years ago when I was at uni where he said, you know, if you believe all the good reviews, you've got to believe all the bad ones as well. Mm-hmm. And so I really try to listen to everything that comes in, whether it be positive or negative, and then decide if it's got something of value that I want to take on board. Yeah. So I kind of thought, all right, well, the fact that I've heard a few times that the freneticism of some of my other books has maybe come at the expense of really building the characters. I was like, I think that gives me some license to maybe slow down and, you know, expand the backstory in the world and the characters a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But in part one, I thought, okay, it's already going to be a slow burn because it's two guys in a car and it's going to escalate to a point where the tension kind of erupts. But if I want to tell this guy's backstory, which at least at first glance is not necessarily a particularly fresh or riveting story. It's about a middle-aged guy going through a divorce, basically. I was like, how do I make that interesting? Mm. And ultimately, I think the answer to that lies in mystery because I love books that sort of alternate between different timelines and everything. And you see that a lot in murder mysteries where, you know, you'll have a now and a then timeline. And that was something I employed in The Hunted as well. But I think the key is always to end each part on some kind of cliffhanger mm-hmm. and to create some kind of question where in the case of part one, you know, you've got the present day stuff with the hitchhiker and the driver. You've got the past stuff where his wife just abruptly leaves him. And his question is, well, why, why, what, what have I actually done? I don't really understand what I've done. I don't really understand why this has happened. So I'm going to have to find that answer. And so then of course you return to the present day timeline. Then when you return to the past. It's like every glimpse of the past you get has to introduce some new question oh, or some new complicating factor. That- hopefully the audience want the answer to Mm. and the i think the perfect world or or the perfect ideal for that kind of story for me is that you get to the end of each alternating section of the story being past and present and at the end of each one hopefully you should feel no don't go back to the other one i want to know the next thing here (laughs) yes but then yes the writers the job right you get to the end of that next part whether it's past or present and then you have the exact same feeling and you're like, mm. okay, well, one chapter ago, I really, really want to stay in that timeline. And now that we're returning to it, yeah. I want to stay in the other one as well. And so that to me is kind of the balancing act. And so I think it comes down to mysteries and cliffhangers and questions that hopefully the reader really wants the answer to. And if you can thread enough of those in there, because I think storytelling ultimately is about just planting enough questions, enough seeds that people do just want to keep reading because they want yeah. to have those questions answered. And, you know, one example I always think back to is my favourite book ever is Red Dragon by Thomas Harris. And the first line of Red Dragon is one of like the most no frills lines I've ever heard in my life, which is, you know, Will Graham sat Jack Crawford down on the bench by the sea and gave him a glass of iced tea. It's so basic. It's so simple. It's so non-pretentious. But here's the thing. Baked into all those questions, uh, sorry, baked into that sentence are so many questions because Thomas Harris hasn't given, taken any time to tell you who these people are. So straight away you go, well, hang on, who's Will Graham? Who's Jack Crawford? Now you're not thinking this consciously, you're thinking this subconsciously, mm. but you inevitably read the next line because you want to know what's going on. Why is he taking him down to the bench by the sea? What that, that implies that they've been somewhere else previously. Why aren't they having this conversation there? And over the course of the next chapter, those questions are answered 
But the time the story takes to answer those questions is the time the writer's using to set up new questions mm. that will keep you reading and keep you reading and keep you reading. And by the end of that first chapter, which is basically two guys having a conversation on a bench by the sea over a glass of iced tea, there are so many questions that you are going to read the next chapter and oh, you are going to read the next this. chapter and the next one, the next one. There are no like massive explosive mysteries. There are no, you know, big, you know, sword fights or battles or any of that kind of stuff that people always think they have to start a story with to make it gripping. There are just small little hooks Mm-hmm. That by the time you've tried to like pull one out of your skin by finding the answer to it, the next five are already in. Mm-hmm. And then you're there and then the writer has you in the palm of their hands. And that's yeah. a technique that I really try to emulate. So make the audience ask questions, I think, is the best way to keep them reading. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I've, I want to say to you, without giving away anything, that there were two moments in the book where I had an out loud, oh! <gasps> So the first one was in part one when we went back to the past and we found out why his partner left. I was like, oh, because it's unexpected, right? And then in part two was obviously um, how Jesse ended up in the car and, you know, what had gone on to make him get in the car and leave. And I was like, oh, my God. So (laughs) what kept me going, Gabe, look, I read a lot of books and particularly crime because I particularly love crime and if I can't guess something, because I feel like I'm a good guesser, I, I'm hooked. And so both of those moments were gasping out loud for me going, I didn't see that coming. So I just wanted to tell you that I liked that. That's not a question. No, <laughs> no, no thank you. Because it's like, because I mean, that's like, that's the crux of crime writing, right? It's disguising things. It's like mm. holding your cards close to your chest. And like, and to me, like the definition of a good twist is not, and this is the mistake I think writers make sometimes, is that they think that a twist should make the audience be like, wait, what? But I don't think it should be that at all. I think a good twist should make mm. you go, of course, how of did I course. not see that coming? That was the and, part two know, the, one. I was like, of course that yeah. happened. How did I not and see that? If you do a good job of planting the clues but disguising them, and the example I always, always, always go back to is the very first Harry Potter book, which everybody forgets has a doozy of a twist. And and I think, you know, it's a, it's a 25-year-old book. I think we're safe to say that the bad guy <laughs> We can spiral, spoiler alert. I think we're okay. But I remember as a kid reading the moment where Harry goes down uh, to find the Philosopher's Stone under the school and he's confronted with Quirrell instead of Snape. And you go, wait, what? Quirrell? But then it quickly quickly makes sense and all the clues suddenly fall into place. And the the, the scene that best sets it up is the Mm -hmm. famous one where Hermione notices during the Quidditch game that somebody's putting a spell on Harry's broomstick and she sees Snape across the stadium muttering something. And so she's so frantic that, that she runs around the station She's so desperate that she's not looking where she's going. She knocks her Professor Quirrell. She gets there. She lights a fire. She distracts Snape. The curse stops. It's all okay. Mm-hmm. And you remember that because in your mind, her knocking over Quirrell, that's not planting a seed. That's in place to say something about her character, to be like, that's how desperate her money is to get there, that the person who is the most rules conscious doesn't care about knocking over a teacher. Mm-hmm. But what it's actually doing is it's planting that seed of being like, well, it wasn't her distracting Snape that stopped the curse. Mm-hmm. It was her knocking over Quirrell. That's and right. so at the end, when it all comes into place, like, you go, oh. of course. And that's what makes it so satisfying. Yeah. And it's that misdirection. So if you can pull that off, and obviously I try to when I'm doing my twists, but it's not always a guarantee that you're going to do it right. And of course, mm. once you've done it in one book, your audience becomes wise to it and it becomes harder and harder to pull it off the next time. But, you know, you still have to keep trying somehow and yeah, find, yeah. find other ways to misdirect and other ways to lead them astray and basically slide of hand and make them hate you slightly to try to, to, to you know, fool <laughs> oh, them. I didn't. I was like, genius, uh, Gabe. I wanted to call you when I was <laughs> reading my or, or listening to my audiobook in the car and go, I love this bit. But you know what? When you talk about misdirection, 
that's exactly how I felt. And we can spoiler alert again because this movie's old is The Sixth Sense. I was so mad at myself yeah, that I didn't get it. And then I thought I had to watch it again. And I'm like, how could I have not gotten that? How did I miss that? And the Fight Club, same thing. You know, you watch it and that exactly. m- that moment when you go, oh, then you look it's back the- at everything. How obvious is it? And the thing about Fight Club is that that was an example where, like, I love that movie, but that was an example where I was spoiled on the ending before I saw it. So when I first saw it as a teenager, I remember watching it and being like, how is this this amazing twist? It's so obvious. But of course it's obvious because you know it and all the clues are front and centre. The thing is, that film is so good at misdirection that you don't realise it. And I've watched Fight Club with many, many people over the years who are far, far smarter than I am and far, far better at picking up on those things. And they didn't know it was coming. And bar none, all of them get to the moment of the reveal and go, wait, what? But then a second later, they're like, of course, how could it be anything else? And it's because the film is so expert at misdirecting you and so expert at making you look over here while planting the seeds over here, but making the seeds still somehow significant enough that you remember them when the moment comes. So, you know, like I always think back to... um, one of my favourite ever TV shows was Life on Mars. You know, Cop gets hit by a car works in the 1970s and the sequel series Ashes to Ashes. And I remember in the lead up to the Ashes to Ashes finale, there was an interview with one of the writers and the, the interviewer was like, we will be able to guess the ending. And the writer was like, well, yeah, you should be able to guess the ending. He's like, if we've done our job right, you mm. should be able to guess it because exactly. what we don't want you doing is staring at the screen and being like, wait, what? That was it? Yeah. We don't, we're not trying to fool you. We're trying to misdirect you hopefully you're surprised by the ending but yeah yeah, but it feels satisfying but ultimately and this always stuck with me they were like it's more important to us that the ending is satisfying and feels right than that it's surprising and i think that is the key to a good twist if you can pick the twist and fight club it didn't matter that i knew the twist because the ending is so satisfying so perfect that it works and that i think is what we need to be prioritizing as opposed to trying desperately to shock readers Mm. at the expense of playing fair Mm, I love all of that, all of it. I just want to sit and think about it, but I'll keep talking and I'll think about it later. <laughs> and then we'll have to talk again about this. To unpack it a bit further, <laughs> as we always do. Now, I did notice you got a fair bit of Bruce Springsteen in. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. <laughs> Which... <laughs> it's funny because, um, you know, obviously anybody who knows me knows that I'm a massive Bruce Springsteen fan. But in a weird way, like, you know, I, like I, I've include pop, included pop culture references and things I've written before, but I'm always a little bit careful about it because I think that if you, you know, if you're going around referencing, I, I'm not across modern music, so so insert modern name here. Harry Styles. That, sure, go with whoever <laughs> that is. And I, I know Harry Styles, but... Um, you know, if you if you go around referencing somebody who's like really of the moment and then 10 years down the line that makes it seem you know that that seems really out of date, then that dates a book, you know. Yeah. I, I ideally want whatever you're reading to be able to be read in 10 years' time, 20 years' time, 30 years' time, and not be confusing. So if I'm gonna do a pop culture reference, it's gotta be something that is so ubiquitous and such a staple that enough people know who that is. And Springsteen, I think, fills that uh or, or I guess fulfills that mandate. But at the same time, you know, I'm also wary of using him or referencing him because I know that it's going to be transparent to a certain contingency of my readership who are going to be like, all right, he's just putting Bruce Springsteen references in there because he likes Bruce Springsteen. But in this case, this was maybe the first time I'd ever thought it felt justified. Yeah. Because I was thinking this is the story, particularly in the middle part with Jesse's flashbacks, it's the story of a kid in a dodgy town 
trying to escape and trying to hold on to some fragile sense of hope while knowing that the brutal realities of the world are constantly bearing down on him and he probably won't be able to overcome them, but he's going to maintain that hope regardless. And that is Springsteen's whole thing in a nutshell. Mm. And that to me is kind of what, you know, really spoke to me when I was younger and I first fell in love with Springsteen because I was a kid from a small country town who, you know, kind of felt frustrated by some limitations of where I came from. And what Springsteen sang about and the way that he sang about it was so, you know, mind-blowing to me at the time. And the thing I always say is that, like, it really kind of set my imagination on fire because I'd never heard somebody so perfectly articulate those feelings and, and what that was and do it with such pathos and honesty and sincerity. And so when it came to writing this, I was like, well, I've already kind of established a music motif because the character in part one has a thing about the Bee Gees, which as the story goes on, kind of, you know, pays off in some less than savory ways. But I thought, well, then I can reflect that in part two by having this other character also have like a sort of, I guess, a musical motif or or a musician motif that he harkens back to again and again and again. And for the purposes of his story, nothing felt more right than Bruce Springsteen. So I did kind of think this was the time to do it, but I tried to be fairly careful in how much I did it or Mm. which songs I kind of referred to or how much I spoke about it because I was like, ultimately the Springsteen references can't be, they can't be there to serve themselves. They've got to be there to serve the overall story and the journey of this character. And ultimately they have to be there to kind of, you know, deepen and enrich his journey without distracting from it or becoming somehow more important than it, which when you are an obsessive Bruce Springsteen fan like me and you kind of just want to find any excuse to talk about Bruce Springsteen <laughs> is actually kind of a challenge, you know, because it's like you have to ask yourself at every turn, is this justified by the story or is this me just wanting to talk about Springsteen? I think it fit well because I, I know you're a massive fan of Bruce Springsteen and so I thought this is funny because I thought, you know, you've, you've snuck it in there, but I was actually like, no, it actually really makes sense for, you know, what Bruce Springsteen stood for and Jesse's situation and, you know, how he's trying to get out of that. So I think you did it well, sneaky, but I liked it and it worked. <laughs> sneaky, but I liked it. That's like <laughs> ultimately, you know, my 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 favourite possible compliment I think I can hear at any point. I <laughs> love it. Now, I want to know the difference between writing an audible and a written novel, a novel that turns into a written book. Why am I losing my words? You know what I mean. Um, so what's the difference? What do you have to do differently when you're writing, when you know it's going to be an audible book? Is there anything different you need to do? Well, you know, it's funny because I feel like this was a question that was in some ways more relevant to my last audible original to the consequence. And the reason I say that is because with the consequence, I tried really hard to write to the audio medium. Mm-hmm. You know, I tried really hard to write the consequence as though it was like an extended monologue or as though it was like dialogue that could be delivered by an actor. And so I, I deliberately tried to write that differently to how I would write a normal novel. But with this, because I I think there was, basically because I knew early on that this was going to be longer and this was going to be more of a novel than a novella, I think with this case, I was aware that there was potentially more grounds for this to get a print release. Yep. So I thought early on, I was like, I'm going to try to write it to split the difference. So, and by writing to split the difference, I mean, I didn't really write split the difference at all. I just kind of wrote it like a novel. And I sort of wrote it that way being like, I'm going to put more emphasis on dialogue and all of that. So that, as I said before, it kind of has the grounds to be adapted into more of an audio drama medium, if that ends up being the way it goes. But I also want to write it in a way that if it ended up getting a print release, 
then I want to make sure that it felt right for that as well. So yeah, with, with the consequence, I sort of really lent into it. And, you know, if I do more audible originals down the line, then, you know, I'd, I, I'd probably like to do that again in other ones or to experiment a little bit with, more with the form or maybe sort of, you know, as Audible have kind of suggested a couple of points, right? Something that's sort of a bit more of a hybrid audio drama novel type thing. But with this, I kind of just wrote it like a pure novel. But mm-hmm. the great thing was that because it's these three parts and on these three different characters and the three different actors structure really lends itself to this story, I think I kind of, like in a weird way, I think this one kind of feels more suited to audio than the consequence did because it's got those three different voices bringing such a different perspective and different style to each of their parts then you know whereas the consequence was just the one voice but somehow this one feels more suited for the medium despite being less overtly written for the medium so i think the short answer to that is that nobody knows anything and and no writer knows what they're doing i don't expect short answers from you gabe that's not how we roll Right. No, I think I've long since proved that's not really within my skill set <laughs> at all, is being succinct about it's anything not. ever. It's good because I literally have to reply, like, um, prepare two questions and that's it. And we just <laughs> talk. <laughs> hey, as long as I can make your job easy, you know, that's the main thing I try to do. No, in his I had so many questions for you this time. I was like, oh my God, I need to ask him how he did all these things. Now, Gabe, I, you know, I just, I love talking to you, but time just goes so fast when we do because, but you know, I feel like we fit a lot in because we talk faster than most of the population. So apologies. Yeah, it's like, you know, three times the real estate in the same amount of time. It's great. So you're welcome. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you can understand us, you're welcome. Um, but the question I want to ask you, I've asked you why you've written probably 73 times now. So I've got a little bit of a different question for you. All right, um, go for it. I hope you didn't prepare for what you write. So look, Danny, just look at the <laughs> no, last episodes that I said to you, the same thing. Um, but what, you've written a few now, you're both audible and, you know, novels. So what defines a Gabriel Bergmosa book? Oh, man. Okay. That's the one question I absolutely have no preference Yes, I'm for. stumped in. Um, I, I guess what I could say to that is that I try really hard in whatever genre I'm writing in, whether it's the crime thriller sphere of something like, you know, the, the hitchhiker or the inheritance or the more horror related sphere of something like the hunted or the kind of, you know, the YA territory of the true color and the white lie. I try to find some points at which I can at least to a small degree subvert what might be expected. And Mm. I'm not saying that I'm doing, you know, these hugely revisionist takes on well-established genres or anything like that. But, you know, with The Hitchhiker, I would like to think that there's at least a couple of points in the book where you go, oh, okay, that's not what I thought was happening. I was being led in this direction. It was something else. And I would say the same thing about The Hunted. And I would say the same thing about even True Color with the White Lie, because I remember one of the most satisfying points I had in the early stages of The Hunted's rollout was when my brother read it. And he was reading the early material in the book where Simon, the hapless traveler, meets Maggie, the pretty girl in the bar. And Simon was very, very obviously like written as kind of a version of what I would be like on one of those road trips. And I remember my brother, I was with him at the time on holiday overseas visiting family in Austria. And he was reading the book and he lowered the book about a quarter in and he rolled his eyes at me and he was just like, this is so typical, you know, you're, you're just kind of writing, you know, the, the awkward kind of, you know, bumbling <laughs> hapless uni student character who's clearly a version of you and you want you meet the pretty girl in the bar and you're going to end up being the hero and that's going to be it and that's going to be it and that's going to be it. And I just remember kind of looking at it being like, just keep reading, buddy. 
just keep reading because, you know, I think a lot of people commented on the fact that they were like, Simon is so clearly a self-insert. And I was like, oh, yeah, and I was aware of that. And then I want to play with that. And then likewise in The Hitchhiker, like in the first part, I wanted to make you think that one thing was going on and then mm. reveal maybe about a quarter or a third of the way into the book that what's going on was something else. And even True Cover of the White Lie, which, you know, starts out as a rom-com but doesn't end as one. Mm. And True Colour was about a lot more than teen romance. Yeah. And I do think that maybe the most gratifying thing is when I see reviews of even that book, for example, where people say, oh, this wasn't what I thought it would be. And that's something that whenever I see that in any review of one of my writing, piece of writing, whether it's a play or a book or whatever else, when somebody's like, oh, that wasn't quite what I thought it would be, that to me is when I feel like I've done my job right. Because yeah. I do like to kind of play with tropes and then hopefully do something slightly different with them. And if I succeed at that, then I'm happy with what I've done. But that's probably the one thing that unifies the very, very disparate range of different things that I've written. If I could pick something that I'm trying for, but by no means saying I'm succeeding at, that's just what I try to do with everything. And if it works, awesome. Yeah, look, I think you do it. I do. I've loved all of your work, and that's why I keep just going, Gabe, we need to talk about this book and all your books. Oh, this, this, yeah. It's really, yeah, no, I really do. I love the work you do, and I think it's because you still surprise the reader. And, you know, I think when you read so much, um, you know, like I read so many books for the podcast and for my own pleasure, um, I find it hard to be surprised and diverted but you've so far managed to do that and particularly with this one as well and I love those moments where I can still go I'm surprised by this book I cannot wait to get back into it so and I've discovered the joy of Audible so um, I know I, I do this very late it's like you know the internet's out and then five years later I'm like wow Google's awesome so <laughs> it's not off-brand for me to do that <laughs> to discover no, something's amazing five or ten years after it's already been around. Um, I think I read Harry Potter after it was already out for 15 years. So I'm a slow adopter to these things, okay? <laughs> but, hey, that's not the worst thing in the world because, you know, like every time I speak to anybody who's like, hey, I just discovered that Breaking Bad show and it's pretty good. And I'm like, oh, how quickly did you watch it? And they were like, oh, I watched it like two weeks. And I'm like, I had to wait a year between every oh, season. And yes. that's how I feel whenever people talk about like reading Harry Potter now. If somebody reads it late, I'm kind of like, yeah, good for you because you could just read one after the other. I wish I got <laughs> through that when I was wait. a kid. I had to, Danny, I had to learn patience. And I'm good at that. That's not, you know. Oh, I can that's relate. Not, absolutely not my skill set. We have the so same vibe, Sometimes game. I think waiting I is better. <laughs> Yeah, it's all part of that creating tension and stuff, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Anyway, congratulations. I, I loved it. I'm possibly an audible convert. Who knows? But I really enjoyed uh, not only the actors but the stories. And, um, you know, it, it's going to actually be one of my favourite reads this year because when a book surprises me and I don't know where it's going, like it has to be because it doesn't happen often, I think, when you're such an avid reader of one genre. So. Thank you, yeah, Gabe, no, for an amazing you, conversation and um, for another great book. And I just can't wait. Hurry up, write the next one. Come on, stop talking to me. Stop. All right, all right, I'll hurry up. I'll right, get back on. to work. No, thank you so much. And thanks for thanks for chatting to me and thanks for letting me talk a bit about the book. Because as, as I think I say every time, you know, I mean, so much of writing is just sort of, you know, you sitting by yourself in your room and telling the few people who care, like, <laughs> this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm doing. And then, like, chance like this to actually talk about 
what you were thinking and how you approached it and everything is just like so immensely gratifying and so 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 like um cathartic in some ways because you're finally getting to like share the process a little bit and kind of spill mm. about everything that you've been obsessing over for months on end so i really appreciate the opportunity and thanks as always for having me on and who knew five years ago i wondered if authors wanted to talk about their books like seriously <laughs> oh no give me a chance and i will go on for hours as we have learned many times over. As we have learned many times thanks again gabe we shall talk again shall do thanks danny